God has to knock the us out of us. And God has to um, start brand new with us. When you are born again, it is a new birth. It's not a correction, it is a new birth. The Bible says you became a new creation. And so because the sin and the old nature, God crucifies that on the cross, right? He died on the cross for our sins. And so many of us, though, think after we get saved that, well, it's all good now. That is exactly the wrong thinking. Your journey with Jesus and this relationship with Him that begins at salvation, God doesn't say, I've saved you, now do what you want. No, God begins to mold you and to shape you in a process called sanctification. And the issue in sanctification is He is making you more and more like who? Like Jesus Christ. And so if you become more and more like Him, the you is a problem. And so God has to humble each and every one of us. You say, Jake, I've been a Christian for 40 years. God's never convicted me of my sin since I got saved. I've never been humbled. I would, I would caution you because you are probably not saved. Because when the Spirit of God comes to live within you and you are His, He has a purpose and a plan for your life. And so I've talked to people. Jake, I've been in church for 40 years and, and God's never convicted me. And I read my Bible every day and, and I don't see anything in my life. And I'm thinking, whew, that's a scary place to be. Because if you're here tonight and you're honest with yourself, the Spirit of God should be dealing with you. Sometimes it is the Lord is removing the you from you. Sometimes the Lord is encouraging you. Sometimes the Lord is strengthening you. You see, you don't get all strengthening all the time. Sometimes God has to work in our lives in a corrective way. And so what we see here is, and I want to start at verse 15, because I think this, these two verses here, um, verse three verses, excuse me, if you're taking notes tonight, that God brings hope even when we do not want it. Thus says the Lord in verse 15, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter whip weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. Don't miss those four words. Refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. Have you ever met someone or been someone who refuses to be comforted? I know what you're saying, it's never been you, never been you, but all of us can get that way. Well, it's just so bad, I don't care what anybody says. This, this loss, this betrayal, this, it's just so bad, I don't care what people do or how God helps me. And, and if you've ever been in a situation like that when you're trying to encourage people and you're trying to love people and you're trying to help people, they're like, I don't care. I don't want no part of that. Because what God says is, stop your weeping because you're going to be comforted whether you want to be or not. That's what He says there. But look where here in verses 16. 
Verse 15, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. She's This literary picture here is that this woman has lost something and nothing can replace it. Nothing can repair it. And God says, dry up the tears, comfort is coming. There's hope. And so tonight, your children might not be in exile physically, but tonight I want you to know that whatever you're weeping over, sometimes you have to be careful because your weeping can turn into a refusal to be comforted, a refusal to see how God can work, how God can move. I uh, have a lot of conversations with pastors and churches, and, and um, money is a wonderful thing, and it can also be a terrible thing. The Bible never says that money is evil. The Bible says that the love of money. And so some churches get so much money that they won't spend any of it. It becomes like a bank. And I don't believe churches should be banks. I don't believe that was ever the intent of what God wanted. And so what happens if the rapture happens and you've got $4 million in the bank? A bunch of heathens are going to spend it, all right? But anyway, that's a sermon for another day. But what happens is when churches begin to struggle and their numbers begin to dwindle and people begin to give up hope, what they start doing is they take their focus off evangelism and outreach and missions and think we have to protect this so the building can stay open even after I am dead and gone. And so I can promise you that if you go to most little churches that have very few people, they probably have enough money in the bank to keep things running as is for many, many years. And the reason is this, they have given up on the hope that God can do anything. They've given up. They, the numbers are down. Their music's no good. Their preaching's not very well. Their building's not good. They're in a bad location. And so what happens is they go from weeping over a, a dry season in their life as a church and just give up. But yet the Bible tells us that God will continue to do what with His church? Continue to build it. Now, that doesn't mean that every little church has to stay open, but I am here to tell you today that there is more than enough lost people that need to be evangelized, that each church has a purpose and it has a place. And so I do not look down on churches that run 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, and, and I probably love them more than I do big churches just because I can, um, I can be very uh, building-oriented. I was raised, right, that the building is the house of God when really we're the temple of God. And so I really love driving by seeing little church buildings. Um, my great-grandmother went to Hebron Presbyterian Church in Walpole. And she, on her deathbed, made one of her sons promise that as long as he was alive, that he would do everything in his power to keep that little church open. And he did for decades and decades. There was five, six, seven people there. And, and you know, they just went to keep the doors open. And eventually as his health failed and things like that, they weren't able to continue that. And now if you drive down there, there's a beautiful cemetery, a, a beautiful little white building, but it's never open. It's, it's never open. But yet the mindset becomes we're in this hard time God promises to comfort us, promises to be with us, but yet we won't listen. 
we won't believe that God can continue to work in our lives. And so tonight, maybe you've been praying for someone to be saved. And you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and, and you just don't see any movement. Don't quit. You have no idea what God is doing in their life. You say, hey, Jake, I've been praying for my marriage and it's been bad for years and, and I'm, I've got no peace there, no joy. I, I can't find any comfort there. Don't give up. Because what he says is she would not be what? Comforted. But he says, dry your tears, and this is how I'm going to comfort you. You see, you need to hear this. God has the answer to the trial and tribulation that you're going through, even though you don't know it. I hope you caught that, right? God already has the answer for the trial and tribulation that He has you going through. God did not wake up one day. Has it occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? God knows everything. From the beginning to the end, He doesn't view time and space like we do. And so God already knows what you need. God knows what you need in your personal life, in your spiritual life. And sometimes it is to knock the you out of you. That's what we see here. Because look what it says in verse 18. He says, I have surely heard Ephraim, which is the biggest tribe uh, at this time, and so it just symbolizes all of Israel, bemoaning himself. You have chastised me, and I was chastised. Like an untrained bull, restore me, and I will return, for you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning, I repented, and after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remembered him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. I want you to hear this tonight because... So many of us think that correction is a bad thing. It's a bad thing is what we say, but it's not. Whom the Lord loves, He... Now, all of us can quote that one word, but when it's happening to us, most of us don't believe that. When God is allowing whatever relationship you put on a pedestal that's more important than your relationship with Him, that's usually not a pleasant period to go through. When God takes the finances that you've been trusting more than Him to provide for you away from you, it's usually not pleasant. It's not pleasant to sell your house and your two boats and your three four-wheelers and your two side-by-sides and your three new cars and, and as they're all going on the driveway. Oh, I can't believe I've lost all this stuff. And what God might be saying is, you have begun to love stuff more than you love Him. You see, that happens in our personal life. It happens in our marital life. And it even happens in the church. You see, there are times of correction that the Lord gives in churches. And there are times of building that God does in churches. I really believe over the last year of COVID that God has took most churches through that period of correction, 
of cleaning house, of doing things that needed to be done, of showing where hearts really were. And if you've said this to me, I'm sorry, but I'm going to use it. So over the course of the last year, I've had people say, Pastor, if you don't make everywhere wear a mask, I won't come back. And I've had other people say, Pastor, if you make us wear a mask, I won't come back. And what I always say is either one of those options is not a good option to hold the charge hostage over. It's not a good option. I don't wear a mask. I don't like wearing them. You know where I stand on them, and I've had to apologize because it made me angry for many, many months. But remember this. Sometimes God is working. God is using these things that hurt us and these things that are difficult to move us from where God wants us has us to where He wants us to be. You see, over uh, the last year and a half, we, we've lost families, and I've been more than upfront with you about those, but God has sent us tons of new families. Some families that had given up on church. Some families that had felt like they weren't able to go from the church they were at. And, and so God has continued to work. That doesn't mean it's been easy. I'll, I'll never forget growing up when we left the church that I was growing up in. I'm pretty sure I told my parents that I'd walk back if I had to, right? And now I look back and and see how, how great it was that God made that move, but at the time it was a terrible move. I, I was a, I don't know how old I was, 12, 13, something like that. I actually had friends. I know it seems hard to believe that, but I did. And uh, but, uh, but that was a hard time. And, and those things happen even as an adult. You say, Jake, I, my best friend from high school is, has, has, has betrayed me. My, my spouse is, 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 is not being faithful. My Whatever it is, you have to remember that sometimes God is using this to correct you, to chasten you, to bring you to a point to say, Lord, I have put things in my life that shouldn't be there. He says, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me, and I was chastised. Like an untrained bull. Now, I don't like this illustration, but but uh, uh, one pastor used it. God is the greatest bull rider of all time, okay? But it's this idea of an animal that has to be broken before he can then be trained. Now... <laughs> I'm just quoting that from here because if I called you all bull, <laughs> that wouldn't go over very well. But that's what he says there. But listen to the hope. Restore me and I will return. For you are the Lord my God. And I think it's important there. And I want to, to read you that word for, um, for restore. <clears throat> um. And it talks about this idea of, of bringing something back in that you love. And the terminology goes along with the story in the New Testament of the prodigal son. Right? The father wasn't waiting at the door saying, you've got to pay it all back before you come in. He didn't say, you've got to serve as a servant before you come in. It says that he was watching and what? waiting for his son to come home. And he, he runs to him and he, he tells him to what? You know, put the ring on his finger and, and, and let's throw a party and let's welcome him because my son that was dead is now alive. 
That's the image here because many times, and, and, and you probably don't struggle with this, but I do. It is hard for me to understand not only why God would forgive me, but why He would welcome me back. Now, you're not as sinful as I am. It's obvious by our Bible studies here. But there are days when I think, Lord, I don't even... What in the world just happened? How have I made a mess of things like I have? And I I tell myself, I wouldn't love you, Jake. (laughs) I wouldn't welcome you back in. But yet God is waiting and wanting to forgive. God never removed my name from the Lamb's book of life. God, God never said, that was a child of mine, that isn't, isn't anymore. Now, that, now, you can have a different theological belief than I do, but I don't believe that happens. I believe that when God writes your name in that book, it is in that book. And so when He wrote it, it was there. And you're not able to erase it. But it's this idea here in this passage of Scripture that there's hope because when there is a turning... God is waiting to restore. Now, most of you have probably borrowed money at some point in your life for something, whatever it was. And there is an obligation that you sign to do what? Pay it back, right? Now, if you don't pay it back, that's another biblical issue, and we're not going to go into that tonight either, but the commitment is to pay it back. And many times, I think, in our walk with God, we struggle with salvation by grace alone through faith. We, we say that we believe it. We know that we believe it. But when we are living in a season of struggle or sin or discouragement, I think most of us feel like we have to earn our place at the table. We, we have to do good so that God will be pleased with us. But yet the Bible says our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. And if you really look that word up, it's vomit rags. I mean, think about that. The grossest, nastiest thing you can think about cleaning up with, that's what you're offering to God. And so your salvation, your standing with God, does not depend on what you do or what you don't do. It's by faith. And that has to become a bedrock of what you believe because you have to believe that when you repent that God not only forgives you, not only does He forget, but that He is welcoming to restore you. That word there, restore me, and I will return. That's a wonderful word, restore. I mean, you think about old cars that are restored. You think about old antiques that are... I do not like antiques. As far as I'm concerned, it's just junk, okay? But if you want to collect it and fill your house with it, that's great. I'm happy for you. And someday your kids are going to sell it and they'll be happy too. But um, I'm just kidding. Don't get angry. Just get over it. But, um, uh, but it's this idea of, of things are more valuable when they are restored, right? They're, they're returned to like new condition. And God is giving them this promise here. Restore me and I will return for you are the Lord my God. Surely after my repenting, <clears throat> Excuse me. Surely after my turning, I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. And I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated. Now, I think this is important because 
I don't know if you know this or not, but people turn from things all the time. And just turning is not repentance. Repentance is when you turn from something like sin to Jesus. People can go to AA and turn their life around for a season. You can go to a secular counselor and turn emotional issues for a season. But I think it's interesting, surely after my turning, I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. And it's important because he's not teaching self-harm here, okay? Please do not think that. And so certain religions and groups, they believe that you should physically harm yourself to make you realize your sin more. Trust me, the Holy Spirit of God can convict you more than any physical punishment you can go through. All right? He can do more good for you than anything like that that you can do. But it is just this idea of this prodigal, these things that shouldn't be going on, shouldn't be happening. And it's really like if you have the King James Version or the NSB, it probably says uh, smoked, right? And so when you think of that, you think of a city being burnt up or but this idea of clap, this idea of, of um, just this mindset. And so because look what it says here. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. Now, it's not saying that being youthful is a reproach. First uh, Timothy and Second Timothy, Paul writes, right? Let no one despise your... He's talking about here the reproach of my youth. He's talking about the sins of his youth. And so if some of you are well past your youth, you say, well, good, that doesn't apply to me. There are sins of old age. There are sins in middle age. There are sins as children. So don't think that just because you're no longer considered a youth, and, and many of you are not, I think all of you are not, but, um, well, or you'd be out there in the gym tonight. So, but think about this. When you start talking about the reproach of your youth, he's talking about as a nation. And so you literally can go like this in your Bible and just track all the way back and it's a pretty big chunk talking about what? The sins of their youth. All the way from Genesis, all the way through the judges, all the way, all the way through the kings. He says, that's all that I've been carrying. But I'm thankful. Because listen to what it says here in verse 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him. Don't miss this. He says, I'm the one that brought judgment. I'm the one that told Jeremiah to say this. I'm the one that humbled them. I'm the one that corrected them. I'm the one that knocked the me out of them. For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Did you hear that? God did not forget about them in their trials and tribulations. God didn't abandon them. God, what? Earnestly remembered them. And, um, <clears throat> and I think that's important because sometimes when 
trials and tribulations happen. And I want to, to just show you this here. Um, if you have a different translation, instead of earnestly, it will say certainly. And so it's this idea that God never wavered in His love or His remembrance of who they are. And uh, as you know, I like the old songs, but there's a new song, which is probably not new anymore, but uh, it's probably, I don't know how long it, it is, but it, uh, the, the line goes, I am who you say I am. So it's probably 15 years old now, right, or something, but it's true. And you have to get to a point in your life where you believe what God says about you, that if you are born again, you have been made brand new. You are a child of God. doesn't matter what the world says about you, what other people says about you. I was, um, I think Alicia's in here somewhere. I was telling Alicia and her mother that uh, over the last two weeks, uh, I have had a peace that I did not have for the last year. And uh, I tell you what, you don't realize how important Peace is, and I don't mean like just peace at home, I mean like real peace is until it's gone. And the problem when you lose it is you really don't even realize it's gone because it's so chaotic. And um, But since Thursday of, of two weeks ago, um, I'm not worried about anything. I'm not worried about who hates me, who likes me, who doesn't like me, who's coming to church, who's leaving church. And I don't mean that you don't matter. Please don't think that. But the Lord has just had to remind me, Jake, you don't sit on the throne. <laughs> and some of you need to hear that tonight. You don't sit on the throne of heaven. You're not in charge. You are just supposed to be faithful and to trust that God has a purpose and a plan for you. And when God takes you through seasons of correction, seasons of humbling, seasons of molding, you have to trust that what God is trying to do is much greater than what you and I understand. I, I don't do pottery. I've seen people do it, and they get on this wheel, and they just throw this big old glob of junk, right? And it's just like, well, that can't ever look like it's anything of value. And then they start to spin the wheel, and they start to, which I don't have the hand motions, and so I probably shouldn't do it on the, on the screen because it'll be some kind of a curse word in a foreign language or something, but somebody from Zimbabwe will watch and be like, that's a bad word. But, um, uh, but they just start to mold it and shape it, and, and uh, they screenshot my sermons sometimes, and they take the pictures of me, and they make them into memes on the Internet, short clips that humiliate me. So I have to be careful what I do. Like the time I threw the money out of my wallet, that was seen by oh, tens and tens and tens of thousands of people. And it was totally out of context. But anyway, um, but it begins to take form and it shapes and it's molded. And, and then it comes off that and into the fire. And you look at it and you're like, people may pay money for that pile of clay, right? I almost had a different C word, but it's just it's what I think it is. But, um, <laughs> but it's why? Because it's the person who is molding it, the person who is shaping it, the per person who is making it into something of value. And you have to believe that without Jesus, you didn't have it. But with Him, you do.
You see, this flesh is not valuable. But the one who lives within it is. I was at two funerals today. And I want you to pray for those two families, the, uh, the DeJournet family and the um, McKinney family. And at both those funerals, come to the graveside, go through the discussion of we lay the body here, right? But what we put in the ground, it's not who we love, right? Absent from the body is present with the Lord. But one of these days, the Lord's going to come again, right? And you can read about it in the, in the letter to the church at Thessalonica. And the dead in Christ will rise. Now, I want you to think about this because God is going to do a restoration work on that body. It's going to turn it into a new body. The Bible says a body that never wears out, never grows old, never gets sick, never dies. But if God didn't restore that, heaven would be a creepy place. Now, I don't like what's not watching zombie movies, but some of you probably do because you're messed up in the head, but that's okay. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's just a joke. This is what you wanted. You got it back. So anyway, um, but it's not. God is going to restore. And if God is going to restore this flesh, that really doesn't mean anything. Just imagine how special it is when He brings life to your soul at salvation. How special and how wonderful it is when you and I go through the new birth. And so I want you to remember that. And if you underline in your Bible, I want you to underline. If you don't, write it there. For though I spoke against Him, I earnestly remember Him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for Him. And this, this word, <laughs> it's kind of weird, but... He's talking here not so much about this, but he's talking about a love that comes from like right here. And so this idea of rumbling and, and, and groaning is, it's almost like in junior high when you wanted to ask a girl to a date or to a dance and, or whatever it was, right? And it was like everything in you was like, I think I'm going to vomit, right? Uh, I think I can't do this. It came from way down in there. God is saying that He loves us with a love like that from His very most inner being. Therefore, my heart yearns for Him. I will surely have mercy on Him, says the Lord. Thoughts? I've talked nonstop for 30 minutes. So. Disagreements, questions. I know you guys don't struggle with sin or struggle with um, uh, knowing who you are in Christ, but uh, I do sometimes. Sometimes I can let my identity be in my career rather than my creator. Sometimes I can let my self-worth be um, divided by my paycheck instead of my provider. You see, most of us won't admit that. But if God took everything away from you, your job, your family, your community status, would it still be enough? If God took everything from you, like Job, He allowed that to happen, could you still say, Jesus is enough? Now, all of us say yes. 
All of us say yes. And I hope that's the case. But when I pray about persecution, I pray, Lord, take me home or let me be faithful. Because I don't know about you, but I can be pretty wicked in good times, let alone if it costs me something. And so I pray, Lord, let me be faithful. Find me faithful. Other thoughts? All right. We're going to see how God leads us. Look what it says here in verses 21 and 22. Set up signposts. Make landmarks. Set your heart toward the highway. The way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel. Turn back to these your cities. How long will you gad about, O you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. Now, this is not talking about the gender battles that we are facing today. I want you to know that God has created two genders, male and female. There is not a third. There is not a binary. There is not a confusion. There is not a time when God says you should be one and now you're another. That's not what He's talking about here, okay? He's talking about in these verses that he was going to set up road marks to lead them back. He had a plan and a purpose. And in your life, God will do that. God will bring people into your life. God will use things. But it's also important, look what it says there, set up signposts, make landmarks, because it should remind you. That's why if you do nothing else, you need to have a prayer journal. You say, Jake, I don't have time to pray or read my Bible. Then you don't need to come here on Wednesday nights because I can't fill you up if you're not spending time with the Lord. I believe that. Church is something that's a substitute and be in addition to what God is doing every day in your life. Now, I know that's not popular. You know why it's not popular in churches? Because most people don't have a Bible study and prayer time. If you have a Bible study and prayer time at home, guess what happened when I said that? You're like, that's absolutely right. But if you didn't, you thought, well, yeah. but anyway. Because why? When, you, when I look at your pages, and I've pastored here long enough that most of you are not on your first page, okay? You are all in the black book, all right? People that don't go here are in the white book because I didn't want to die and someone say, well, look at all these people that are in the black book. Jake must not like them. No, I put you all in the black book. Everybody else is in the white book, okay? But many of you, I can take your papers out of my folder and look through there about how God has worked over and over and over and over again. Because I don't know if you know this or not, it's easy to forget how good God has been. As a church, as a family, and as an individual. I told my wife today, uh, I struggle with with being angry. And uh, I know you say, I can't believe I said that. But I struggle with this. I don't understand why people do the things that they do. I just don't understand. And that's how God views me, I know, but it just makes me angry. And so, like I was, like my wife and I were talking, and I know this is going to make you mad, but so be it. I was saying, I'm sorry that I can come home and be so angry about things that really don't matter. Right? Come in the sun porch, fall down 13 times, because there's two pile of clothes and 37 pairs of shoes, right? Why can't you just put your shoes 
on the racks that I bought specifically in the mudroom for what? Shoes. I don't understand it. And so, then I make a statement like this. If you're going to be here all day, can you make sure that they pick them up? I don't say make sure you pick them up. I'm not dumb, all right? I'm slow, but I'm not dumb. Well, Jake, it was busy, and we had four doctor visits. And, we, and I, I understand that, but I still don't understand it. And so I can struggle with that. Just like I don't understand how saved people don't want to come to church. Memorial Day and the 4th of July are two of the most special American holidays that we have. But as a pastor, they are two of the worst. You know why? Because everybody's gone. Now, I don't, think, I don't think you should be gone. I'm okay with you being gone. All right, that's not a... But everything in me is just like, here we go again. Half of the people are going to be here. And half of you are thinking, oh, no, I'm going to be gone on Memorial Day and the 4th of July. Heathens. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But I'll tell you how the Lord had to break me a couple years ago. My oldest child wanted to come with me on the 4th of July Sunday. We didn't have two services back then, so getting here at 7.30 was a big deal. She said, Dad, I really want to go. I was like, I don't want you to go. It's the 4th of July. Everybody's going to be gone. I was grouchy. I was frustrated. We can't, I let her come to church anyway with me, you know, and uh, I was sitting there. I was finishing up my sermon because I always like to read over them and read over them and read over them. And she said, she stood right across my desk and my office is where it is now. And she said, Dad, I'm ready to get saved. I said, I don't want to talk about it. You're too young. We're just, just, just no. And she looked at me and said, Dad, this is going to happen whether you want it to or not. And I stopped typing and looking at my computer and thought, how dumb do you have to be, Jake? How angry do you have to be? And so Ben and I and her sat back here and she gave her heart and life to Jesus. So while I get angry with you on the 4th of July, I don't get angry with her because the Lord asked to remind me, Jake, who do you think you are to play the self-righteous card? And that's really what it is, isn't it? Somebody else is doing something that I don't think they should, and I think I'm better than them. We all do it. We all can fall into that way. But I want you to hear this. What God is saying here, which I got way circled back around here, He says in verse 22, How long will you gad about, O you backsliding daughter? God already knows how long this is going to go on, okay? He's not wondering, well, I wonder if it's going to be 200 years. No, God already knows. He's asking them. It's kind of like this. When you ask your kids, didn't you know that jumping off the top ring of the slide would be a problem? Didn't you know that if you ran your electric car that the Weinbauers gave you into my van, that that would be a problem? <laughs> didn't you know that? <laughs> Which, I'm just teasing him. He did, but anyway, I'm not mad. I'm not angry. No, I'm just kidding. My vans are junk. It doesn't matter. So, but, you know what I mean? Didn't you know better? Have you ever found yourself asking your kids that? Your grandkids? Didn't you know? Didn't you think about it? And that's literally what God says here. Is how long are you going to wander? How long are you going to run from me? Because look what it says there in verse 22. For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall 
encompass a man. And I want to read this quote to you. It's perhaps the most obscure phrase in all of Jeremiah. Some see this as a prophecy to the virgin birth of Christ, but the word woman does not have a definite article with it. And such a general word for female cannot be made to mean a virgin. Furthermore, encompass does not mean to conceive, nor does any of this fit the context. No one interpretation satisfies all difficulties since the attention of the verb encompass is uncertain. But it may mean that woman refers to Israel and man to the Lord, and this word is meaning embracing. And what he is saying is there is going to be a new relationship with Israel and God. And we know that new relationship comes through who? Jesus Christ. And so if you that's my best I got for you there, okay? That's the best that I got. Because it goes on here in a little while and it talks about lots of other things. But for the sake of time, we're going to stop right there at verse 22.